Have you ever fought a demon or are you a baby bitch with no brain? <laughs> you know that I'm a baby bitch with no brain. Let's just be honest. <laughs> you? I've fought many demons. The demons of sick thoughts. Demons. Yeah. <laughs> childhood demons. Childhood traumas. Every single one of my ex-boyfriends, demon. <laughs> Every single one of your ex-boyfriends, demon. Demon, demon for sure. <laughs> Ugh. All right. Anyway. Well, welcome, welcome to Paranormal, guys. <laughs> I'm Marie. And I'm Nicolina. And we're here to give you your daily or your weekly dose of spooky slumber party scary stories that are real stories. Right? Yeah, real stories. And also... I. I mean, this is a last minute decision to do this story for me, but I think it's probably one of my favorites that I've ever done. I don't even know what it is yet, and nope. I cannot wait to mm-hmm. hear it. Mm-hmm. So stoked about that. Um, before we start, I want to give a quick shout out to Catherine Paracas for becoming a patron on our Patreon. Yep. Uh, and just so everyone knows, she is going to be joining us next episode for our hometown haunt episode to tell us about her creepy story. So I'm excited for that to happen. Same. Uh, back in the day, she won a paranormal giveaway on Instagram. So super excited to have her on. Yeah. And Pumped. Uh, yeah, so that'll be fun. And if you guys want to be on an episode, um, you can go and become a patron on our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash paranormal pod. And we will set up a Zoom call with you and we will have you on the show. Like we had Mary on and like we're going to have Catherine on. For anyone who is a patron currently, we are going to have our February live Q&A on February 11th. So just wanted to let you guys know to set aside the time, 7 p.m. Yeah. Eastern Standard Time for the Q&A. Yeah, we usually host around then. I will provide the scheduled link from YouTube Live. Mm-hmm. And also, um, we noticed that Instagram has created a rooms channel. So we'll be able to also add our patrons to that so that we can do Q&As through there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is super exciting. Yeah. So yeah, that's all I got. Um, all right. Well, did you want to right into horoscopes yeah let's let's dive into horoscopes because i feel like this episode's going to be a meaty one. Oh, i'm excited i cannot wait okay. okay i think you're first okay i'll do first so gemini a long-term love relationship may finally reach the point of total commitment <laughs> finally <laughs> Intense feelings and words of love could suddenly come from your partner, which could take you by surprise, but are no less welcome for. Talk of a future together may result, but no concrete decisions will be made, nor should they be. Don't push it. Bask in the glow of the promise of lasting love. You know, I've been waiting for my husband of five years to finally take it to the next. Finally commit. Oh, sure. It rings true. Uh, there hasn't been any large declarations of love. Mostly just normal, normal stuff. Uh, normal declarations of love. Normal declarations of love, like love you. <laughs> but it's just good to know that finally, after five long years of marriage and eleven or twelve long years of us being together, that you know things are finally coming up, Marie. So. Yeah. <laughs> finally coming up millhouse um yeah i mean i couldn't get through that one without laughing just because i, know. I was at your wedding i know <laughs> so i've got yours here we're ready if you're into writing leo this is the perfect day to sit down and churn out the words even if it's only a letter to a friend Your imagination is especially vivid, your expression clear and understandable, and your vocabulary skills especially acute. If this is a thesis or article, you may spend hours on it. Don't worry, it will be that much better for it. Did you have to do like lots of content writing today for work? I had to do a lot of um, communicating today, uh, which required me to write quite a bit, but I wouldn't say I didn't write anything long form. I had to do um, 
some title like writing, but my manager didn't like what I wrote. So I guess I didn't do very well. Um, but I don't know if that's really my fault or if he just had an idea in his mind that he really wanted. Um, so other than that, yeah, I mean, I, I did write a lot. I just, it wasn't very, um, poetic by any Mm. means. Yeah. But I think I communicated properly today, Mm -hmm. effectively today. Good. Yeah. Well then both of our horoscopes ring true. Both of them uh, nailed it. Nailed it. Spot on. Um, all right. Well, before we get into the stories, I actually wanted to talk to you about another podcast that I found. Yeah. Um, so I found this podcast. It's called History Defeats Itself. Mm-hmm. And it's a comedy podcast. And it explores if like we as people learn from our history or if we're doomed to just end up repeating it forever. Right. I always like think about that. Yeah. So on each episode, they talk about a single topic and it can be like really, really mundane. So like the one episode that I was listening to is like about the history of um, like takeout, like food. Like oh, okay, like cool. Yeah. Um, or it could be like super fascinating stuff, obviously. Mm-hmm. And there's three of them and one of them will pick the topic and they do the research, but they don't tell the other people what it's going to be until they're actually recording the episodes. I like it. So- Two of them are just learning about the topic with with us, the listeners. Right, right. And each episode, they like they plan it out, but it's super spontaneous. Like they're super, super funny. I was cackling in my car listening to it. It was so funny. And um, at the end of the episode, basically, what their objective is is mm-hmm. to determine if the subject's been a success or if it's another example of how history has defeated itself. So, did we learn anything? Nice. Or- from this right yeah it's super funny I highly recommend so in the take the takeout episode like what did what was the conclusion of that you need to go listen to it oh well go. okay uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> yeah okay I will um but yeah now I want to know so that's to talk to about it because it's so it's so so funny so go yeah listen to it and then we'll we'll talk about it okay sounds good will okay. do all right well let's get into our um stories for this episode mm-hmm. We were planning on not doing a theme, but then I last minute called you and was like, I've got an idea for a theme. And luckily it, it worked with the story that you already had in mind. So we're doing um, disappearances, mysterious disappearances. Um, it's not so much on the CSI side of things. It's not like um, murders, disappearing people like that, but mm-hmm. more so just completely unknown there's a lot of either paranormal attributed to it or conspiracy theories related to these disappearances so that's going to be our focus for this episode and I I believe I'm going first so I have chosen to do the um Bennington Triangle so I mean we all kind of know what the Bermuda Triangle is or at least Mm -hmm. I've heard about it to some degree but I had never heard of the Bennington Triangle but it's a very famous um place in the mountains of southwest Vermont so I got all of my information from allthatsinteresting.com listverse.com legendsofamerica.com and historybyday.com. So they all had um, different articles around the Bennington Triangle. And um, the Bennington Triangle was dubbed by Vermont author Joseph A. Citro, and it is loosely uh, a loosely defined area that encompasses the ghost town of Glastonbury, which was once a small logging community centered in the mountains of southwest Vermont. It was abandoned at the end of the 19th century after the logging boom died down, and now the greater Glastonbury area is mostly untouched, pristine wilderness, and considered remote even by Vermont standards. So for those of you unfamiliar with the Bennington Triangle, it has mysteriously swallowed as many as 40 hikers and residents. And this started with Native American warnings, which Joseph A. Citro documented in his 1996 book, Passing Strange, True Tales of New England Hauntings and Horrors, saying that the Native Americans refused to set foot on Glastonbury Mountain unless they were burying their dead. In their eyes, the whole mountain was cursed land because the four winds met there in eternal struggle. So I don't know if they 
notice like a vortex of winds meeting and they were like that's not cool i'm i don't know but basically no one really heeded the warnings and there were just ongoing reports of strange lights in the sky sounds with no explanation odd odors on the mountain that predate colonial settlements these reports combined with many strange disappearances have led to speculation about ufos and wormholes in the area still the strangest report may be the bennington monster thought to be an early bigfoot or sasquatch the monster has been described as well over 1.8 meters so six feet tall with hair from its head to its toes the first sighting of the monster was reported in the early 19th century when it rushed a stagecoach on a washed out road the beast knocked the stagecoach onto its side and fled into the dark with a roar and luckily no one was harmed in 1967, a somehow less pleasant monster began to appear on the mountain. The wild man of Glastonbury lived in a cave near Somerset. Unfortunately for everyone, he didn't stay there. Reports say that he would descend into nearby Glastonbury and other settlements in the Bennington Triangle to harass women. He accomplished this by pulling open his ratty, ratty coat to reveal his nude body while waving around a pistol to scare off anyone who might want to stop him. Luckily, that seems to be all he did before fleeing back to his cave in the mountains. So, sounds like Hess Village when the pandemic wasn't happening. Basically, yeah. I feel like we've all experienced the Glastonbury monster at some point. (laughs) Um, At one point or another, all of us have experienced... Females, specifically, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Now, there were also strange happenings in the Bennington Triangle that were less fantastic than a massive ape man or a gun-wielding nudist. Um, Apparently, the conversion to a tourist town was hard on the loggers and miners of Glastonbury and Fayville. So, in 1992, a sawmill worker named Henry McDowell drunkenly bludgeoned a co-worker to death with a rock after he heard voices telling him to attack. He was committed to an asylum, but managed to escape and vanish. Only five years after that murder, another strange one followed nearby. John Harbour was a prominent Woodford citizen who went into Brickford Hollow, just south of Glastonbury, to hunt. He was shot by persons unknown, but was found with his fully loaded gun just next to him and seemed to have been dragged several several yards. Those who investigated his death were left wondering why he was so easily shot, given that he had a fully loaded gun with him, and why his assailant would bother to put the gun next to him after dragging him. This, yeah. yeah. So this murder has gone unsolved and will likely stay that way. Then, of course, there is the string of missing persons that began some 70 years ago in the abandoned town, which is the most curious mystery that haunts the Bennington Triangle. So I'm basically going to go through these string of missing persons and what occurred and what they believe could have or may have happened to these people that are still unsolved cases to this day. Okay. So in 1945, a five-year span of disappearances began in the Bennington Triangle with the vanishing of Middy Rivers, a 74-year-old local hunting guide. Rivers led a party of four hunters around the area of Hell Hollow in the southwest woods of Glastonbury before he was suddenly lost. After an unsuccessful initial search, many still believed that his knowledgeable woodsmanship would be able to survive and soon surface in town. However, this was not the case. Soon, more than 300 concerned locals and U.S. Army soldiers dispatched from Massachusetts for Devons combed through the vast wilderness for eight days, turning up not a single shred of evidence as to the whereabouts of rivers. The following year saw arguably the most infamous missing persons case in the history of Vermont, the disappearance of Paula Weldon. Weldon was an 18-year-old student at Bennington College who decided to hike a leg of the long trail during Thanksgiving break when most of her peers had returned home for the holidays. She was last seen on Sunday, December 1st, 1946, wearing easy-to-spot red and entering the long trail near Glastonbury Mountain. Weldon never showed up for her Monday classes, spurring a massive search party of more than 1,000 people and a reward of $5,000. 
despite the large turnout, numerous aircrafts utilized, and a variety of assisting law enforcement departments, no clues to her fate were ever discovered. And many, including Weldon's father, criticized the authorities' lack of sophisticated methods in handling the case, which actually served as a catalyst for the founding of the Vermont State Police seven months later. And the case still remains open to this day. I don't know, have you ever seen Twin Peaks? Yes, I have. Great, great show. Right. So for some reason, this just reminds me of Twin Peaks in a way. Yeah, I was thinking that too. Just like the kind of ghost town, Vermont, cold, whatever, missing girl, that whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I couldn't help but think of it. But anyway. for sure. Yeah. So exactly three years to the day after the vanishing of Paula Weldon, the Bennington Triangle saw one of its more seemingly supernatural disappearances. That day, a 68-year-old man named James E. Tedford boarded a bus to Bennington after visiting relatives in St. Albans, Vermont. Numerous eyewitnesses, including the driver, later confirmed that Tedford had been in his seat as late as the last stop before Bennington. Yet, when the bus finally pulled into Bennington, Tedford was nowhere to be found. So they, like, he just wasn't on the bus anymore and they hadn't made any stops that he would have gotten off on. So, yeah, after he implausibly vanished into thin air while inside a moving vehicle, baffled passengers noted that Tedford's luggage and an open bus timetable remained on his seat. If the witnesses are correct, Tedford would have disappeared from his seat as the bus was traveling down Route 7 through the Bennington Triangle. Yeah, unless somebody, like, opened the window and shoved him out of a window. Shoved him out of a window, like, like, how... people would have seen that. Right? Oh, my God, that's creepy, Yeah. Nearly a year later, in mid-October 1950, eight-year-old Paul Jepson went missing. He was last seen happily playing in the family pickup truck by his mother, who left to tend to pigs at the dump where she and her husband were caretakers. Then he vanished without a trace. In addition to the hundreds of assembled for a search party, a New Hampshire sheriff brought in a bloodhound to sniff out the missing boy. The dog was able to pick up his scent by abrupt, but abruptly lost the trail at a nearby crossroads, suggesting a possible abduction by a motorist. As the case dragged on without resolution, some suggested that Jepson met an early demise at the hands of his parents and was dinner for the pigs. But, in keeping with the eerie feeling of the Bennington Triangle, the boy's father told the Albany Times Union that it was perhaps the lure of the mountains that pulled in his missing son, as the boy had talked of nothing else for days prior to his disappearance. That's creepy. Okay. And then two weeks later, this disappearance, 53-year-old Frida Langer, an experienced hiker and survivalist familiar with the area, went missing on the Somerset area of the Long Trail bordering East Glastonbury. After hiking a brief half mile with her cousin Herbert Eisner, Langer fell into a stream and set back to their camp to change her clothes, where her husband was resting with a hurt knee. But neither her husband nor her cousin ever saw her again. Helicopters from the Connecticut Coast Guard and U.S. Army in Massachusetts, as well as local aircraft from Citizens and the Vermont Aeronautics Commission helped search for Langer, As many as 400 people, including the Massachusetts National Guard, meticulously searched the surrounding area, yet found nothing. But soon, they did find something, and this became the only known disappearance of the Bennington Triangle where a body actually turned up. Six months after she went missing, Langer's corpse was found near the Somerset Reservoir, curiously, an open area that had been searched extensively numerous times in the previous months. Yet, even with a body, the case saw little resolution. The body had decayed so badly that no cause of death could be determined, only fueling further speculation about what kind of disturbing end she might have met. The intriguing mysteries and unexplained events associated with the Bennington Triangle have caused many to speculate wildly about the possibilities of nefarious and perhaps paranormal forces at work. A notion bolstered by alleged UFO and Bigfoot sightings, like I mentioned earlier. Others obviously believe the burst of missing persons between 1945 and 1950 may have been the work of a serial killer. 
But the lack of sheer evidence to back this up, as well as the variety of victims, ages, and genders, usually serial killers have some sort of pattern that they stick to, rules out this theory as well. Others still contend that the disappeared met their demise at the claws of an indigenous mountain cat, such as a lynx, a bobcat, or a catamount. However, bobcat and lynx are not known to be aggressive to humans, and the catamount has not been um, sighted since before 1940. All in all, when trying to tie the disappearances together in hopes of discovering a solution to the mysteries, there's little to go on. The only known similarities between the most documented case in the Bennington Triangle are the close proximity of the disappearances. The time of day, when most were last seen, was between 3 p.m. and 4 p.m., and the time of year when most were last seen were the final three months of the year, most of them happening in October. It's odd that they're all happening within the same time frame. Yeah. The first disappearances left no trace at all, and Langer's body was discovered in a place that had already been searched. Perhaps someone was extremely successful in abducting and killing near the highway or the mountainside, uh, and likely many other killers, maybe that person succumbed to the desire to show off when they moved Langer's body into the open, as serial killers tend to want to do. But I feel like even the space between these people dying seems odd, that it's like one person every year or like yeah. Um, yeah, around the same time. And yeah. And then it would even make sense in Weldon's case, since she hitchhiked, hitchhiked to the mountain and may have accepted a ride home as well by a motorist driving by. Right. Um, yeah. But the fur there's a few problems with this. The first is that Langer and Rivers went missing on the mountain near friends. It would be extremely risky for a serial killer to abduct someone with their friends with an earshot. The second problem is that the victims don't follow a pattern and it would be rare for someone to pick up two elderly men and an 18-year-old woman and an 8-year-old boy and a 53-year-old woman, like I mentioned. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I mean, Dennis Rader, who's the BTK killer, I don't think he had, like, he would kill There are a few people, yeah, there are a few serial killers that don't have a a trend like that. Yeah, but. but for me, the thing is, like, if you were within yelling distance and somebody yeah. had come to murder you and you like you would have screamed and your friends would have heard you. Yeah, and you're in the I feel like it, it probably would have echoed or at least someone would have heard something. And where the hell did the serial killer go? Exactly. Exactly. Without yeah. like you hear rustling noises in a forest, like I'm sure you would have heard it. Um, yeah, because my thing is like they're okay. This is got if it, if it is a serial killer, let's just say sure, whatever, like, sure, it's got to be like hand to hand combat because nobody heard a gunshot. Right, right, for right? sure. Yeah. So if it's hand to hand, because I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe they didn't scream because they shot hit they he shot them at a distance or something, but they would have heard the gunshot. The friends would have heard the gunshot, so we can rule that out. Yeah. So hand to hand combat. So you're telling me somebody came at them, murdered them, and the friends were within yelling distance and the friends heard nothing. And also, I, like, the boy in his his mother's truck, too. Like, I feel that's not... It's, it wasn't even... Like, he was near the Bennington Triangle. Like, he was right near right. it. He wasn't even in the forest. I just feel like that, that one's such an odd one. Like, an odd one out that... Unless there's just, like, several motorists coming by and it's not one serial killer. It's multiple killers. Just, it's, like... yeah. Yeah, I get what you're saying, but like, through. it still doesn't make sense that nobody heard anything if their friends were all being murdered. No, I absolutely. You know, like, I agree that there should be some evidence of it, some degree of evidence. These people vanished. There's no, like, they have no evidence of these people existing ever again. The next explanations are supernatural, each with its own flavor of strangeness, and it's hard to judge which is the wildest. On the high side of the spectrum is the idea that the there's a man swallowing boulder hidden among the cairns at the mountain's peak. No one knows how the cairns were assembled there or when, but they probably don't actually eat people. Um, however, the description of people being swallowed whole in a rock may have sparked the cross-dimensional wormhole idea where UFOs have been able to come through or something along those lines. Writer Joe Derwin has covered the strange folklore in his column, These Mysterious Hills, and explains how the mythos of the triangle has changed with the times. 
When newspapers first reported of the Bennington Triangle phenomena, the explanation was tied into Native American legends. In the 1990s, the explanation shifted to UFOs and other ideas popularized by the X-Files. In the early 2000s, the myth circled back to Bigfoot and the Bennington monster. Derwin isn't overly critical of the supernatural, though. The stories are important to him. They keep the memories of those who disappeared alive and inspire people to think critically. So, obviously, there's more rational, practical explanations as to what could have happened. Hypothermia, people can reach... You know, if they go into the woods, they're traveling, whatever. If they go on long walks, they may enter a part of the mountain that is actually much colder or fall in a river or something along those lines and just die of hypothermia. But we still don't know where these people end up. Right. That's that's the thing is they're they're missing still. Yeah. So and they say that many, many of the hikers have difficulty navigating the mountains So there was one example where a man who was like a veteran hiker, he went into the woods, he knew exactly where he was going, and then a deep fog ran through as he was hiking. So he was like, okay, I have to take this one route to get to my car. So he took the route and he was like, my car should be here. I should have reached my car already. What the hell? So then he retreated and just basically set up camp and... um made his own fire and just did what he could to survive and I guess the next morning he went to the route where he believed he should have been and he reached his car so he was like why did that route not take me to my car the first time but this time it did because it's the triangle that's why exactly exactly it's the it's the triangle so that the, those are the stories of the Bennington Triangle. There continues to be basically strange phenomena and um, weird noises. I wanted to find any recordings of noises, but I couldn't find any online. So because I'm interested. They don't exist because it's the it's the triangle. right. Right. They probably get erased <laughs> off people's phones once they come. I'm not even joking. Tell people, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, that was. Yeah, look it up. It's pretty wild. There's lots of things that go on there. There's I could have gone in into like 20 different hikers experiences, but it was just getting out of control. Oh, my God. That's so good. That's such a good one. Yeah. Did you hear that they think that they have... Okay, do you remember the story, the Dilatov Pass? No. It's the one where, like, I have a feeling you did it, but it could have been a different story where mm-hmm. there were hikers on a mountain and the next day, like, their tent was shredded from the inside and shit like that. And Oh. I, 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 don't, I don't know. I don't think so. Okay, I'm going to do, this is not the story that I'm going to do, but there's an update in that case. Oh. Like, that happened forever ago, mm-hmm. right? It happened 62 years ago. Okay. So, they think that they, so I'm going to really quickly talk about this only because there's been a break in the case, and then I'm, I'm going to get into my story. Okay. So, Cole's notes for you. This happened in 1959. A group of student mountaineers, they were like really skilled student mountaineers, with their instructor went on an expedition to the Ural or Ural Mountains. And then after a snowstorm, their tent was discovered to be ripped open from the inside. The members of the group were found scattered around the campsite with fatal injuries and signs of hypothermia. There were no survivors. And over the years, conspiracy theories have suggested animal attacks, uh, Soviet parachute mine testings, aliens, like tons of shit. I swear you've done this one um, because their injuries were all internal injuries and they were like crazy internal injuries. So there was a researcher named Johan Gom, I think is how you pronounce the last name. And he was watching the Disney movie Frozen. Okay. And he was so impressed by how well they got the movement of the snow, how it was depicted in the movie. Mm -hmm. So he went and met with Disney's animation studios to obtain their snow animation code. And using this code, he was able to figure out how a wall of snow 
could cause the injuries found on the victim's bodies. At just the right angle, a slab avalanche can create a projectile out of ice, which would lead to a traumatic impact. Oh, wow. Some believe the avalanche is too simple but this guy has proven that it's absolutely plausible and definitely is well most likely what has happened that's that it's makes i mean disney frozen that's wild but yeah cool yeah. i mean i know right very um, cool so i just had to talk about that because i was like people are probably going to be messaging us being like did you hear about the dialogue pass and i'm gonna yeah, be like fair enough fair I enough got it. so I'm going to be doing the story of Travis Walton. So I found this story while I was watching Amazon Prime and it came up as like, you should watch this. And I was like, oh, a movie. Okay, this looks terrifying to me. If you know me, um, I'm not going to, we'll get into the story. So watch it. The documentary is just called Travis. So on November 5th in 1975, Travis Walton, he's a forestry worker and he was riding in a truck with six of his coworkers in a national forest near Snowflake, Arizona. They had just finished finished a job in this forest. Um, and later, so in the evening, the co-workers would end up calling the police to report Travis missing. The circumstances that they told the police about ended up leading the police to believe that the friends had killed Travis and hidden his body. This then led to a search mission complete with dogs, search teams, and helicopters, but despite their best efforts, they couldn't locate Travis's bodies. body. <laughs> the friends were detained, and eventually they all agreed to take a polygraph test regarding Travis and what had actually happened to him. The polygraph, there were four polygraph questions, and they were as follows. The first question, did you cause Travis Walton any serious physical injury last Wednesday afternoon? Second question, do you know if Travis Walton was physically injured by some other member of your, of your crew last Wednesday? Third question, do you know if Travis Walton's body is buried or hidden somewhere in that Turkey Springs area? And question number four, did you tell the truth about actually seeing a UFO last Wednesday when Travis Walton disappeared? Every crew member took the polygraph test every crew member passed the polygraph test. Okay. Five days after Travis went missing, he reappears. What? He reappears on a highway, walking down a highway. Oh. He has a beard, and he had lost 12 pounds. And this is when the frenzy starts. Ralph Anderson, who's, I believe, Travis's brother-in-law, called and spoke with the National UFO Reporting Center on November 13th in 1975. He tells them that he had gotten a call from Travis asking for help from a telephone booth. Travis's brother, Dwayne, went to pick him up. And after Dwayne picked Travis up, based on the conversation that they were having, Dwayne could tell that Travis thought this was the same night. Like, he didn't realize that all this time had passed. Right, right. So at that point, Dwayne tells Travis to feel his own face. And so Travis does, and he realizes that he has grown a beard, and that means that he's been missing for days. Okay. So going back to the day of the incident, the men had just finished working this job. They were driving back from it when they noticed a glow coming from behind the trees. The men tried to rationalize where this glowing light could possibly be coming from because it was really late at night and it's in the middle of the forest, so obviously there's like no lights, right? They thought possibly an airplane had crashed. Maybe they thought it was campers. Maybe there was a fire or something. So they decide they're going to investigate. They follow the light to a clearing in the woods, and that's when they see a 25-foot saucer-like craft. They, They describe it. So Travis immediately jumps out of the car. He starts running towards it. And the guys, the crew members in this documentary are, i sorry, I didn't write down any of their names other than the ones I just spoke about. But um, the guys say that Travis got out, like jumped out of the car before they even stopped driving the car. Like he started running towards this craft. Right, right. As he got closer, they started hearing a really high-pitched beeping noise. And Travis says that as he got closer to the craft, he could feel the noise 
making sounds that were not detectable by the human ear. Um, low pitch and high pitch. Like there were all these different types of noises going on. Right. All of a sudden, the woods light up in a blue-green light. And when his friends looked up, they see that Travis's body is being lifted into the air, about 20 feet into the air, and then just crack, like slammed onto the ground. So oh they think gosh. he's dead. They're like, yeah. oh my God, he's dead. So they take off. They leave. They say they leave trying to find any type of civilization, like anyone else who might possibly set up, might possibly be in these woods um, who might have guns, like hunters, so that they could go back, but they couldn't find anybody. So they do eventually go back to where the UFO was and the craft was gone and so was Travis. So when Travis came back five days later, he could only remember around two hours of the experience that he had over five days. This place called APRO, which stands for the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, ended up contacting him and they offered to hypnotize him. And through this, he was able to remember more things. So Travis says that when he was lifted up into the air and slammed back on the ground. He lost consciousness. He doesn't remember being slammed into the ground. The only thing he remembers is regaining consciousness. And he was looking up at a bright light and he thought that he was in the hospital. He was in severe pain, he says. He looked over and he saw two aliens standing over top of him, like looking at him. And he freaks the fuck out grabs this thing that looked like a tube he said and he's like I was going to use it as a weapon um and he starts trying to defend himself they don't try to approach him they leave they leave the room there was a a hallway and they go to the right and so he goes to the left because he's like they're gonna go get more aliens and I need to get the fuck out of here so he goes to the left he goes into a room and there's nothing in it except for a chair and like control, a control system. He hears someone come into the room and it was a man who was not like the other creatures at all. It looked like a human man. Travis asked him questions, but the guy wouldn't answer. And Travis says that he like had a helmet on his head. So he thought maybe the guy can't hear me asking him questions because he has this helmet on his head and he can't hear through it. Um, he takes Travis by the arm. He takes him to a large room with two flying saucer-looking, like, things in it. And then he was led down another hallway into a room with three other human-looking creatures in it. So he says that when he looks out the windows of these rooms, all he can see are stars all around them, but Mm -hmm. no one in it. So he's like, I'm far enough away from my solar system that I can't see any planets in my solar system, and there's just stars here. Okay. So... Anyways, so there's three other human-looking people in, in that room, possibly aliens, but they look like human beings. He starts trying to ask them questions. They do not have helmets on. They also will not answer his questions. They end up putting some kind of mask over his mouth. He says it looked and felt like an oxygen mask. He looked up, and then there was just light, like just white, bright light. Mm-hmm. That's the last thing he remembers before he woke up on the road. He was walking when he woke up on the road. Yeah. He looks up and he can see the lights from the UFO and the UFO like taking off into the fucking space. He recognizes the road that he's on. And so that's when he runs to the phone booth because he knows where it is. And he calls his brother-in-law. Now, there are a bunch of UFO experts that have obviously studied this case. And they say that there's no reason to not believe what Travis has remembered of the incident. There's a man named Jim Lorenzen, who was the man who led APRO, and he's written several books about UFOs. He was interviewed on Arizona's Face the State, and he said that Travis described these aliens almost identically to the way another person who had been abducted had described them. However, that case had never been published, so it was impossible for Travis to have read about the case or read about the dis- the aliens and the human that or people he thought were humans, physical descriptions. Um, also, through all of this, he's going through hell, by the way. The public, like, doesn't believe him. Right. They were talking about him and the crew members said that their phones would be ringing 
24 hours a day. It mm-hmm. would not stop ringing. Um, and they're basically to- being told like, you guys are liars. You made this all up, blah, 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 whatever. Mm-hmm. There, the one guy said that for like years and years and years since, since this happened, that he's been angry at Travis, even though he knew it wasn't Travis's fault. Right. Because his life changed. Eventually, a bunch of the men end up moving away from this town because they're literally being harassed so badly by the public, but they won't go back on their story. They won't admit that it's a hoax because they're saying it was real. Um, anyway, so through APRO, Travis is then introduced to many other UFO investigators. Along the way, he's introduced to a nuclear physicist named Stanton Friedman. Now, Stanton Friedman bases his investigations on facts, data, numbers, stuff like that. So he's not into sensationalism at all. He freely admits that he has never seen a UFO in his life and that he takes a scientific approach to his investigations regarding UFO sightings. Stanton ended up going to the site where Travis was abducted. He ended up going to Travis's home. He interviewed him. He interviewed Travis's family. He interviewed the people who were who saw this happen, like anyone he could possibly interview. He advocates for objectivity until all the evidence has been explored. And he says that Travis's case is unique because there were several other people who witnessed it and because those people all passed several polygraph examinations. So not just the initial one that the police gave them. Right, right. They went on throughout the years, took many more polygraph tests, and they always passed them. Um, And by the way, the first polygraph test that was ever administered to them was administered by the number one polygraph administrator in the state of Arizona. So he graduated top of his class, like, was like a, like, if, if there was anyone who was going to be able to catch them lying, this was the man who was sure. going to do it. Sure. Couldn't do it. And he's interviewed in the documentary, too. So, I think this is a really weird thing that happened. The Another weird thing is the tree growth in the vicinity of where this happened. So, investigators went back to the area where he was abducted, and they found that the trees in the area had grown at a rate of 36 times faster than the trees just beyond the area where the craft was. That's weird. Not only that, but the trees that were beyond the area that hadn't grown like um as yeah. like as fast rapidly as the other yep. ones. Um they cut them down to look at the rings inside of it and the rings were thicker on the sides that were facing the craft. So almost like this energy is like pulling it towards them. I see, I see, I see. Um, All around, like in a circle. Um, Then there was a man named Philip Class, and his job is to debunk UFOs. So he's a UFO debunker. And he was really, really, really good friends with this guy named Donnie Menzel, and he used to be the leading guy of like debunking UFO sightings. So... Philip Class was like ruthless, ruthlessly trying to disprove Travis's story. Like, just, but the thing is, Travis would reach out to him and he'd be like, You can interview me. You can interview the people who, other people who were involved. You can interview whoever you want. But he wouldn't interview them. He refused to hear their story. And then he reached out to the polygraph examiner, the number one, the guy that I was talking about earlier, and asked him a few questions. And the polygraph examiner was like, yep, it's like, I believe them. I tr- I truly believe that this really happened based on the results I'm seeing here. And he offered to have the guy come and interview him as well and offered to do another polygraph with him there. And he never even responded to this guy's um, requests. So that's when people start digging into like who Philip Class is and like what's going on. Turns out, Philip Class's really, really good friend, Donnie Menzel, that we just, I just talked about, the yep. other leading UFO debunker. Yes. Worked for the NSA. Okay. The two guys were obviously really close, and um, Phil ends up offering one of the crew members who witnessed this, offers him $10,000 to say that it was a hoax. Oh, my God. 
$10,000 in the 80s was a lot of money. $10,000 now is a lot of money. $10,000 in the 80, 80s was a lot. I mean, to anybody, it's it's still a good chunk of cash. Like a lot have, of money, you know? Yeah. The guy refused. He was like, it's not a hoax. Absolutely not. Don't oh take God. the money. And so they're trying to figure out why a respected member of society would try and bribe a young man into saying that this was a lie. The crew even wrote him a letter and they all signed it saying that they would take a polygraph in front of him with an examiner of his choice. And if they were not lying, he had to pay for the test. But if it, if it came back that they were lying, they would pay for the test and he declined. So through this research, they they figured out that the United States government was asking Phil to step in to make Travis seem like a liar because in the 80s, they didn't want anyone to know about UFOs back then. They wanted to keep it hush-hush yeah. for several reasons. One, they didn't want to incite panic. Mm-hmm. Two, they're like, this is a security risk and we need to figure out how to handle this before we let the public know. Right, right. Three, like other countries can find this out, find security breaches and shit like that. So. Yeah. That's why they believe that this guy was trying to debunk them so, so aggressively. Travis believes that the reason why he was abducted was because he got too close to the craft and the energy that was radiating from it was what picked him up and dropped him and it caused him such harm. Everybody thought he was dead. Everyone that saw it thought he died. Right. Um, But he thought that it caused him such harm that the aliens ended up taking him with them to fix him up and return to fix him, him yeah because they wouldn't answer his questions but all like and he was in pain but he wasn't dead right and, like didn't have any broken bones like they mended him wow so throughout all of this travis and the crew have maintained their story it's never changed and it's never been embellished Travis is now a public speaker regarding his experience. He's written a book about his experience and there's been movies based on his experience. Wow. And his experience is considered the most documented case of UFOs of all time. And that is the story of Travis Walton's UFO abduction. I mean, the fact that he has like a crew of people backing up what they, what he, what happened to him or at least... Like, I've never heard of a story involving UFO that was like had more than one or two people involved, right? So yeah. that's that's wild. That I mean, that's cool. That was a good story. Thanks. Well done. I thought it was cool. Now I'm not going to sleep tonight because I'm terrified. <laughs> I mean, I don't think they come into your home. You know. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're going to do our fuck, Mary kill for this episode, which is uh, we're doing famous uh, magicians because, you know, they like to do disappearing acts. So we figure that that was in line with the theme. Yeah, I think it's a good theme. And I <laughs> thought it was um, there's some pretty, pretty good ones to choose from. So would you like to go first or do you want me to go first? You can go first. It's OK. OK, so I'm going to go with. Chris Angel. Okay. Penn and Teller, they're one together. Okay. And Harry Houdini. And Harry Houdini. Okay. So I'm going to have to look them all up. Sorry. Hold on. No worries. So, <laughs> what do Penn and Teller look like? Aren't Penn, okay. Aren't Penn and Teller like, not magicians, they like debunk magicians and shit like that. No, they had a show of debunking magicians, but they are magicians. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, okay. Oh, right, okay, okay, okay. I'm, oh my God, why? Okay, I'm going to kill Penn and Teller. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to marry Harry Houdini because he's so famous. He's serious. Okay, okay. And I will sleep with Chris Angel for my emo self. Okay. Uh, you know to yeah like live in her live in her let her live in her glory yeah I I agree with (laughs) those choices I agree with your choices oh my god okay let me see who I can pick um okay I'm gonna pick Val Valentino I don't have never heard of that person but okay 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 um James Randy okay David Blaine. Okay, David Blaine. Okay. Val Valentino. Mm-hmm. 
American. Okay. <laughs> when was he popularized in the 80s? He looks very 80s. <laughs> and Italian. Um, okay, so Val Valentino, David Blaine, and who was the third one? Val, so Val Valentino, by the way, is the masked magician. Okay, yes, I see this. I see it. Yep. He yep. Um, the other ones were David Blaine and James Randy. James Randy. James Randy. So I'm probably to Penn and Teller him. Right. Right. So I think I'm going to kill James Randy. Okay. I mean, he already died last yeah. year. So <laughs> we're gonna go with him. Uh, I am going to marry David Blaine because he, mm, oh, maybe, mm. yeah, I'm going to marry David Blaine because he's the most famous and um, I'm not going to. Val Valentino has to have his mask on though. When I have sex with him? Yes. Yeah, I would prefer that. Um, (laughs) But also, I was obsessed with the mask um, that show. Like, I was obsessed with it. I used to watch oh, it all yeah, the time. Yeah. So, okay. uh, I, I would, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll sleep with him. But um, <laughs> David Blaine, just, he's the most famous of them all. So, I feel like oh he's the God. most money. So, I'll marry I him. Love I love it. I love it. But, yeah, the uh, Val Valentino. I didn't, I'm going to be honest, I've never, I did not know that was the face of that guy. I just, I knew he was exposed. But I didn't know that that was the guy. So that's oh, wild. Too funny. Um, a lot of people don't like him. A lot of music- <laughs> musicians. A lot of magicians don't like him. A lot of musical magicians don't yeah. like him. Oh my God. All right. Well, that's been paranormal for you today. That's paranormal tonight, guys. Today, whenever you're listening to it. I don't know. Um, I'm going to go check out history defeats itself now and yes. see how that episode ends let me know how you like it and then okay we'll do um don't forget to tune in next week to hear Catherine tell her ghost story on our podcast yep and uh any patrons february 11th is our live q a and if you want to join the live q a go sign up to become a patron absolutely and don't forget to stay spooky because that show biz baby Bye-bye. Bye. If you like this episode of Paranormal, we need your help. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple. And if you listen to us on Spotify, go ahead and click the follow button. Even better, you can donate to us on Patreon, where you can access bonus content and members-only merch. To support your favorite spooky duo, go to patreon.com slash paranormalpod. And for show updates and giveaways, be sure to follow us on Instagram at ParanormalPod. And remember, stay stay spooky. spooky!